Nutrition is remarkable in its ability to have people with completely opposite views saying they have science to support completely opposite views. Frustrating, isn't it? What are we supposed to believe? In our last show in this training of the move driver of the five pillars of a dynamic health, I was talking about the beginning of movement. I explained that humanity's ability to speak, to write, use gestures, and even use sign language are mediated through our contraction of muscle, through movement. Even our sensory modalities, our memory, and cognitive processes either drive or suppress future movement. If you hadn't heard the last episode, go back and do that first. Otherwise, this isn't going to make a whole lot of sense. This is part two. So sorry, I don't usually do that. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to continue debunking the myth in exercise physiology. You know the myth that if you work out for an hour or two a day that you're golden. Again, let me ask you that question again. Would you eat one meal a day and skip the rest of meals of the day? What would happen if you did? You would be deficient in nutrition, right? You'd get sick. And do that for 20, 40, 60 years of your life. And you have a recipe for chronic disease. You can't only do exercise for an hour and then sit or stand in a static, immobile, sedentary position all day. That is killing us. Again, like everything else in science, we all disagree. So I'm going to give you my perspective of human movement. Not rat and animal based, but human movement and how it relates to you, not the rat, not the animal, you. There's a difference, guys, but first, we gotta discover the origin of human movement, and that leads us to Dynamism Biohack, the beginning of movement, part two. Dynamism is the enthusiastic quality or charism that dynamic people possess that characterizes them by their vigorous action and progress. They step outside that it's genetic cliche, the blame it, name it, and tame it with a drug approach into what I call true health. This is the health class your doctor doesn't know, the wellness prevention and health promotion solution, how to get and stay well for a lifetime. That's dynamism. Dr. Wolpert is a British medical doctor, neuroscientist, and engineer with outstanding contributions in computational biology. And he would have this to say. And say he would say, now, for those of you who do not believe this argument, we have trees and grass on our planet without the brain. But the clinching evidence is this animal here, the humble sea squirt. See, the sea squirt is an immature, undeveloped, basic form of an animal. It has a nervous system and swims around in the ocean in its juvenile life. The sea squirt has a fascinating story to tell. It begins its life as an egg and develops into a tadpole-like creature, complete with a spinal cord down to the tail. And the sea squirt has a brain. It helps it wiggle its tail to locomote through the water. And the interesting thing is, its mobility does not last long. Once it finds a suitable home, it attaches itself and never moves again. And after it implants itself to its home, it slowly digests its own brain and nervous system for food. In other words, the lesson of the sea squirt teaches something marvelous to science because once you don't need to move, you don't need a brain. 
And there's an interesting relationship between movement and the brain. And Dr. Wolpert considers himself a movement chavianist. He states, I believe that movement is the most important function of the brain. And do not let anyone tell you that that is not true. What is the relationship between movement and the brain? You know, most neuroscientists would agree that this is a difficult problem. Dr. Wolpert uses an analogy to explain this complicated matter with the game of chess. You know, the question in chess is, how do we determine what piece to move and where? And so, if you pit my nine-year-old son when he is not drawing and working on children's stories against his computer chess game, the computer chess game will win every time. And that problem is solved. But let us suggest a different skill that is the most difficult aspect of chess. It's picking up a chess piece, right? It's dexterously manipulating it and putting it back down on the board. So if you put a nine-year-old child's dexterity against the best robots of today, the answer is simple. The child wins easily. There's no competition at all. The simplest of motions for us, like picking up a pencil, is maddening complex. It requires coordination and computational power beyond electronic abilities. In other words, for this, you need a brain. In, in the area of robotics, why, why is the computational power so natural and the dexterity so hard? And one reason is that a very smart nine-year-old can learn what the algorithm is for that problem by looking at all possible moves to the end of the game. He can then choose the one that makes him win. It's a very simple algorithm that he learns the more he plays the game. And of course, there are many other moves, but the computers can only approximate toward the solution. And so in robotics, dexterity's algorithm is rather unclear. You have to solve to be dexterous. Human beings have to both perceive and act in the world with movement, which has a lot of problems when you try to make a computer do that. And this is why in robotics, it does not move and perform with anything like the agility of a human being. In other words, there is no generalization to implement an algorithm from one task to another in robotics because dynamic movement is required for dexterity. So let us compare this to cutting-edge human performance. And recall that Dr. Wolpert says, we have a brain for one reason only, to produce adaptable and complex movements. There's no other plausible explanation. So he's saying that our brains are built on and inextricably tied to the movement of our bodies. The movement creates our brain because movement requires a brain. When my nine-year-old son desires to strategically move his knight, his brain must execute complex commands in order for dexterity to function. The different neurological senses for touch, pressure, temperature, all of that stuff. They harmonize through different areas of brain centers simultaneously to a working order. So what does he have to do? Well, first, he has to pick up the knight without knocking it over on the chessboard. Ask a robot to do that. It's not easy. He needs to determine how much pressure he needs to use to get the right amount of grip to pick it up, right? Without dropping or even crushing it like a robot. 
Then he needs to determine the careful movements as he navigates the night to the next square without knocking down other pieces. And finally, he's got to determine how gentle or hard he needs to, you know, he needs to be as he places the knight into the new square. In order to control all of these specialized movement functions, his brain needs to send a command down the spinal cord to cause muscles to contract after his brain senses the need to pick up the chest piece. And again, the process is complicated. And I'm going to revisit this process later, but for now, just understand that the human body contains sensory organs that detect movement. And when these sensory organs are turned on, they send input to the brain. And the brain then responds and produces an output through the spinal cord to every tissue, cell, and organ in the body. And when the output reaches your arm, your arm muscles contract and you move. Just like the sensory organs in the body that detect movement, we have them for vision, skin, and other specialized functions as well. So when the signals are not very clear, it's kind of like watching TV and a rain cloud gets in the way of the satellite. So you miss the game's touchdown. Boy, I hate that when it happens. What makes controlling movement so involved is the quality of the sensory feedback. See, when that rain cloud messes with the TV reception, for example, we call that picture extremely noisy. The waves on the TV make the picture noisy. I don't mean sound. I mean the picture. You know, science uses this term in the engineering world and in the neuroscience sense, meaning a random noise is corrupting a signal or a a distortion. Therefore, in this case, something in the body is corrupting that signal. Now, allow me to illustrate another example. Try taking your right hand and place it on a table. While you put the left hand under the table, trying to localize or connect your hands together without the ability to see through the tabletop. More than likely, you would be off by several centimeters. Interesting. Similar to looking at a pencil stuck in a glass of water, it looks bent due to the noise and sensory feedback. Of course, this would be referred to to as refraction in the pencil's case. But another interesting example is aiming at a basketball hoop or a dartboard. Trying to hit the bull's eye over and over requires the use of sensory feedback. The movement output each time you try to point toward the basket is extremely noisy. The variability which each shot attempted is an example of something they call movement variability. In fact, this type of movement is both variable and ambiguous. So variable and ambiguous movement means the glass could be full or empty. See, it changes over time. So our body's signals perform like an orchestra, working on a whole sensory movement task with many different instruments out of tune, causing an imperfection of the music, an array of defects or noise. See, science can be so easy, guys. We just need to take the Latin out of it. It's a dead language. But you're getting this. And so back to our story. The brain also goes through a lot of effort to reduce the negative consequences of this sort of noise and variability. And to do that, Dr. Wolpert uses a framework which is very popular in statistics and machine learning for the last 50 years. And I know, don't get lost here. It's a big word. It's called Bayesian decision theory. 
Bayesian statistics is a framework for making technical conclusions about the underlying state of the world, right? And it's based on observations and prior beliefs. So the approach tries to infer causes from their observed effects and then assigns probabilities to each of them. So it's a unifying way to think about how the brain deals with uncertainty, right? The fundamental idea is that you want to make evidence-based conclusions and then take actions. So starting with the conclusion reached by evidence and reasoning, you want to generate beliefs about the world. So let me give you an example, right? One example could be the belief of a kind of animal, you know, one is looking at. And keep in mind that using our model, we're going to represent beliefs with probabilities, we could represent a belief with the number system wherein probability exists as a percentage between, you know, say zero and one. Zero meaning I do not believe it at all. One means I am certain. And the figures in between give you the gray levels of uncertainty. Okay, hang in guys, let me get through this geeky stuff. There's a reason and a method of this madness I'm taking you through. Bayesian theory, I promise. It's not technical, not scary. Just data, sensory input, data. So we have sensory input, which we can take that in and we can generate beliefs. So of course, there's another source of information. We have prior knowledge. You accumulate knowledge throughout your life in these things called memories. So Bayesian decision theory Give scientists the mathematics of the optimal way to combine your prior knowledge with your sensory evidence so as to generate new beliefs. Neuroscience has a formula for this. It has real explanatory power, measuring the probability of different beliefs given your sensory input. Dr. Wolpert, he illustrates rather an intuitive example. He says, imagine you're learning to play tennis and you want to decide where the ball is going to bounce as it comes over the net towards you. Now, there are two sources of information. Bayes' rule tells you. There is sensory evidence, visual information, and auditory information. It might show you a general area where the ball is going to land. We can mark that spot red. But you know that your senses are not perfect, and therefore there is some variability of where the ball is going to land. And we can represent that by marking that red spot into a more of a fuzzy cloud. So we can plot this variability on a graph, and we can represent it with numbers between 0.1 and maybe 0.5. So when we learn new movement skills, the task is similar to Bayesian rule. So neuroscientists tell us that brains are similar to Bayesian reasoning machines. And as we learn about things, we learn about statistics of the world and our brain processes it. But we also learn about how noisy our sensory apparatus really is. And so our brain combines those in a real Bayesian way. The brain does make predictions of the sensory feedback that's, gonna, that's going to get. And it's changing the perception 
by what you do. So in order to explain how it does that, we need to explore about how the brain deals with sensory input. So when our brain sends a command out to the body, we get sensory feedback back to the brain. That transformation is governed by the physics of your body and your sensory apparatus. And this, of course, is very interesting to chiropractic work. So looking at the brain, sensory input is like shaking a ketchup bottle. If I were to shake a ketchup bottle, I get some true sensory feedback and time indicator. If I have a good predictor model, it would predict the same thing with every new bottle. This is actually Dr. Wolpert's example. He explains it this way. He says, imagine as I shake the ketchup bottle, someone very kindly comes up to me and taps me on the back. Now I got an extra source of sensory information due to that external act, the tapping on the back. I got two sources of information. You tapping on it, and I get me shaking it. But from my sense's input, from my sense's point of view, that is combined into one source of information. You see, these models serve as perfect examples to how movement, especially our tiny movement of the spine, generates like a windmill the sensory information to the brain. Now I'm going to cover more of this stuff in future shows. I'm going to talk about the lateral line system present in over 30,000 species in the underwater world, in the oceans, the lakes, and the rivers, and how those sensory organs tie in movement of the fish swimming and the movement of the water current, and how that hits the lateral line system, right, and generates nerve impulse to the brain and central nervous system. I'm going to explain that how that is true for the underwater world is also true for the terrain world, but most especially for human beings. It turns out, guys, humans genetically require around 8 to 10 miles of walking, which generates spinal movement. Or the windmills of our spine. And that, in turn, generates nerve impulse. Input to our brain comes mostly from the movement of our spine, right? Through special sensors, we'll get into it later. And then, of course, output to every tissue, cell, and organ in the body. We're going to get to it soon, I promise. But for now, just know that the neural stimulator linkage between the brain and movement is carried by the evidence from the sea squirt to human beings. And there's a clear association. The more a species needs to move, the bigger its brain must be. And this relationship is particularly pronounced in mammals. It also goes in reverse, such that if the koala bears wanted to retain the larger brain that evolution gave them, they also needed to move. The koala bear has a super small brain in its huge head because it lives in one tree, sleeps 20 hours a day, and hardly moves at all. It's sedentary. Sounds like a lot of humans. In contrast to humans, the human brain has shrunk when compared to our hunter-gatherer ancestors. Koala bears and humans need to move if we want to expand our brains and species. 
Until next time, I'm Dr. Matt Hammett reminding you to lighten up, move better, and live fuller. Until next, dynamism biohack.